are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey starts here. Here. you all for coming, taking out uh, the time to come here, and of course I want to um, thank Jean uh, Lauber and uh, Judy Cooper and several other people, Teresa, I don't know her your last name, uh, who helped put this together, because I am really thrilled to be here. And I really appreciate that you all have come. Let's start with me telling you a story. The story of a man more introvert than extrovert. A man who made America not better for himself alone. A man who knocked down the last vestiges of segregation, mostly in housing and education. Lauren Miller's legacy and his legal accomplishments are the subject of my talk tonight. And I hope tonight, when you leave, that you walk away with a greater understanding of who Lauren Miller was beyond being a champion of equality. Today I will present a description of Miller's early life, then follow it with his importance and his accomplishments, and of course his landmark Supreme Court cases. You will hear of his friendship with Langston Hughes and their trip to the Soviet Union in 1932, which I spend an entire chapter on in the book, but only briefly mention it here today. His marriage and his legacy as a journalist. And then at the end, I'll be happy to take your questions. So why is Lauren Miller important? Why is a man who died in 1967 relevant today? Imagine yourself moving into a neighborhood where the people don't look like you but they go to court to make you move. Imagine the community using the court system to try to do that. This situation might sound outdated, but discrimination and racism is not obsolete in 2016. Miller is relevant today because he brought an end to racial segregation, because the struggle for civil rights and equality continues. This situation, <clears throat> sorry, our current freedoms, our lack thereof, are rooted in the past, and it is through our court systems that we are able to change things, to fight in the courts. Miller's story is a story of an extraordinary American, an unsung hero who changed the course of history a story of, of, of a man who few people remember today. Federal Appeals Court Justice A. Leon Higginbotham, Jr. In paying tribute to the black lawyers of America, Higginbotham said in 1979 that one man who should have been an appellate judge or on the U.S. Supreme Court is the late Lauren Miller. Others felt that he was barely second in importance to Thurgood Marshall, the late Supreme Court Justice. Here I want to read briefly from the opening of my book. Lauren Miller died on Bastille Day, a fitting coincidence for a man dedicated to storming the hush-hush of courtroom injustice. In the coolness of the summer evening, on July the 14th, 1967, a Friday, he succumbed to pulmonary emphysema. By noon on July the 19th, thousands of people overflowed the capacity of the Methodist Church. Filling the pews or crowding outdoors was virtually every black lawyer and most of the judges in the city. A multitude of greats, near greats, among them dignitaries and just plain Joes, came to pay final respects to the great man. 
Lena Horne, the show-stopping beauty of film and music, blacklisted in the 1950s for her political views, spoke at the ceremony and later acknowledged hundreds of telegrams, letters, and condolences. Mourners came from far and near to attend the rites of the longtime civil rights leader and prolific writer, lawyer of intimidating rectitude, and key strategist in the campaign to overturn racial discrimination, particularly in housing and education. A man who by sheer force of will and determination improved the lives of those on the periphery of justice, close quote. Although he became one of the nation's most important civil rights attorneys of the 1940s to the 1960s, he grew up in immutable, unbearable poverty on farms in Nebraska and Kansas. He wrote in his unpublished autobiographical novel of his childhood that one night there was a sudden clamping of the trap and the squeal of the rat. Before the night ended, his mother had caught 14 rats. They were what might be called a family of itinerant squatters. And here I'm going to stop briefly and read from, from the book again about the kind of world Lauren Miller was born into. Quote, Lauren Miller came into the world on the western edge of the Omaha Indian Reservation in Pender, Nebraska, on January the 20th, 1903. He was born during the American coal famine of 1902 to 1903, when fierce industrial warfare erupted in the coal fields of Pennsylvania and caused a fuel shortage with a broad ripple effect. In Nebraska, people turned from burning coal to burning corn to heat their coal, their homes, and cook stoves. In neighboring Council Bluffs, Iowa, fuel-starved factories threatened to shut down. Public schools in many states were closed as coal supplies dwindled. In Indianapolis, along the railroad yards, poor people scavenged lumps of coal and hauled them away in wheelbarrows and sacks in broad daylight in full view of guards with rifles. Eventually, the federal government intervened, turning from strike breaker to peacemaker for the first time in the United States history. Perhaps the atmosphere of social, political, and economic unrest surrounding Miller's arrival presaged what lay ahead for him, a life on the front line of justice where he would shine a light in the dark corners of racism and inequality. Miller was soft-spoken, slightly built, intellectually brilliant, extraordinarily sensitive, and scholarly-looking. The FBI reported he had a small scar on his chin. Born in 1903 in Nebraska, he was a son of a former slave who married a white woman. He wrote that his mother's love for his father was so great that it led her to cross the color line. However, the hard scrabble life of abject poverty sometimes took a toll on his mother, a former school teacher. It was during those times that she leaned heavily on her Bible to keep cheerful despite the hardships. As a child, he was small and easily terrified. He grew up on a farm, but he didn't like killing chickens or hunting. He cried at the sight of his father baiting a fishing hook with live sparrows taken from their nests. No matter what his home life was, he dearly wanted to go to school and barely could wait until he was old enough to go. Before Miller entered school, he had taught himself how to read. He played pom-pom pull-away, which is like tag, come and get me or I'll fetch you away. However, he played ball just enough, he said, to keep from being called a sissy. By the time he was 10, the townspeople, who were all white, began saying that 10-year-old Miller was the brightest child in school. When Miller was a boy in Nebraska, his father worked 
at the courthouse as a janitor. His father would take him to court, where he would sit in the courtroom and listen to the cases, watching and learning. Whenever people asked him what he was going to be when he grew up, his answer remained the same. I'm going to be a lawyer. And that's just what he did. Eventually, Miller's family moved to Kansas. Displeased with his new school, he wrote to his former teacher back in Nebraska. In her reply, she said, Don't you get discouraged, Lauren, about your schoolwork. If you do your best, you will surely become far greater than the teacher who won't give you credit for what you do. Maybe you will be our president someday. But if you do not become president, you will surely fill some other good place if you do your best. One hundred years ago, it was impossible for a black boy to even consider becoming president of the United States. But this school teacher, who happened to be white, believed that one day he would do something very important. Determined to succeed, Miller returned to his studies and worked harder than ever before. He went on to college, where he studied to become a lawyer. In 1928, he graduated from Washburn College in Kansas with a degree in law. Although Miller trained as a lawyer, what he really wanted to do was to write. He wanted to write poems and novels. But he was born at a time when educated black people had few choices. In 1929, following the death of his sister Ruby, Miller set out for Los Angeles from Kansas. He was a freshly minted member of the bar who preferred political activism and writing to the practice of law. Straddling a career as lawyer and journalist, when he arrived in Los Angeles, he quickly found work as a newspaper reporter for the largest black newspaper at the time. In 1932, using his clout at the the newspaper, he invited his friend and prominent writer Langston Hughes to Los Angeles. Shortly thereafter, they decided to drive to New York and travel to Russia to make a film about blacks in America. That trip sealed their friendship for the next 40 years. However, five months later, the film project ended for political reasons, and Miller returned to the United States without the movie ever being made. Soon after returning to Los Angeles, Miller married Juanita Ellsworth, who in 1927 graduated from the University of Southern California, where she had studied to become a social worker. After his trip to Russia, Miller, urged by his new wife, returned to the practice of law. Although he sought to pursue the writer's life, the need to put food on the table at the height of the Great Depression propelled him to work as both lawyer and journalist. He admitted that he was dragged kicking and screaming into the practice of law. You know, in those days, he said, a Negro could be a lawyer, a doctor, or a school teacher, and that's about all. He sacrificed his dream. Not a man given to brooding or self-pity, Miller accepted the career path he had chosen. Miller and his wife, Juanita, maintained a circle of friends, which included, among others, the singer and actor Lena Horne, Nobel Peace Prize recipient Ralph Bunch, the Harlem Renaissance painter Aaron Douglas, and Carrie McWilliams, editor of The Nation magazine, and one of the Hollywood Ten attorneys who defended blacklisted filmmakers during McCarthyism. As Miller's legal work focused increasingly on civil rights, he became friends and became member of organizations like the NAACP and the American Civil Liberties Union. His reputation as a skilled and brilliant attorney grew from local prominence to national recognition. Miller became known as a go-to guy if you were turned away from an ice skating rink, a movie house, or a restaurant. He started taking on higher profile cases that impacted national issues. 
During World War II, when President Roosevelt authorized the internment of Japanese Americans, Miller and his ACLU colleagues took a very unpopular position, a position that not even the NAACP or Jewish organizations would take. Although Miller and his friends fought hard to halt the curfew and the internment of West Coast Japanese, their efforts failed. When the army trucks and soldiers came from Miller's neighbors, he did more than watch as they were carted off to the camps. He had already arranged to hold the deeds of his Japanese neighbors <clears throat> until they returned after the war. What is not so widely known is that in 1946, before Brown v. Board of Education of Topeka, Kansas, Miller was part of an important class action case in California. It challenged the constitutionality of segregating Mexican-American schoolchildren from California's public schools. On behalf of the National Lawyers Guild, the American Civil Liberties Union, and the ACLU, Miller submitted amicus briefs, friends of the court briefs, in support of Mendez v. Westminster. It was the first case to hold that school segregation itself is unconstitutional, that it violates the 14th Amendment, the Constitution's Equal Protection Clause. What is important about the Mendez case is that it was the first case to use sociological and psychological evidence to show how segregation damages children. This was before Brown v. Board of Education. The uniqueness of Brown is that it too used sociological data as evidence. That strategy led to the historic decision to end racial segregation in America's public schools. Although Lauren Miller did not stand up in court to argue the historically famous Brown case, he drafted most of the legal briefs that led to this monumental victory. At the same time that Miller worked on the Mendez case, he represented Hattie McDaniel, the first black woman to receive an Academy Award. She won an Oscar for her role in Gone with the Wind. She was being sued because she had the audacity to buy and live in a house in Los Angeles' exclusive Sugar Hill District. It was thought that there would be a little problem for a black movie star to be forced to move. However, this was a time in Los Angeles when the only way a black person could live in a restricted area was as a servant. This was a time also that the black residents of Los Angeles, long fed up, filed more suits contesting the validity of restrictive covenants than in any part of the country. On December the 5th, 1945, Hattie and her 50 co-defendants and hundreds of sympathizers appeared in court in all their finery. One writer said that the stylish atmosphere in the court was such as to make one wonder if the judge would pour tea during the afternoon recess. Ultimately, Miller won what was considered the first restrictive covenant case won on constitutional grounds. Afterwards, Miller wrote her friend, he said, I rushed home to try the Sugar Hill case and succeeded in pulling a rabbit out of the hat. By inducing a local judge to hold race-restrictive covenants unenforceable on the grounds that such enforcement violates the 14th Amendment. The Sugar Hill victory was a monumental moment, for Miller was the first of many high-profile cases. Because Miller argued more segregated housing cases than in any attorney, more than 100, he earned the title of Mr. Civil Rights of the Western United States. By the mid-1940s, Miller was part of a group of brilliant NAACP Legal Defense Fund attorneys, led by Thurgood Marshall, who changed the course of history. Miller argued two landmark cases before the U.S. Supreme Court. In 1948, he argued the famous Shelley v. Kramer case 
that all lawyers study in law school today. Alongside Thurgood Marshall and Charles Hamilton Houston, Miller overturned racial restrictive housing covenants. This meant that it became illegal to stop people from living where they wanted because of their race. However, before the Shelley case ever came to court, the NAACP held several meetings to determine which cases, which strategies, and which attorneys would stand before the Supreme Court. Thurgood Marshall remained unconvinced that the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment was the best strategy to use. Miller, unflaggingly persistent, convinced Marshall that the Equal Protection Clause and the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment are intertwined. When the Shelley case finally did reach the High Court, it included non-legal sociological materials on the effects of segregated housing. Miller said that the question before the Supreme Court was a simple one. What the court decided was that no state could enforce any law that deprives its citizens of life, liberty, or property without due process and equal protection. In other words, restrictive covenants violate the 14th Amendment. Close quote. Thurgood Marshall said that the Shelley case was unquestionably one of the most important in a whole field of civil rights. Aware that Miller's strength lay in his command of the English language, Marshall again turned to Miller, this time to write the majority of the briefs in Brown v. Board of Education, six briefs to be, to be exact. Because of Miller's contributions, segregation in America's public schools became illegal. These cases laid the foundation to end segregation in America and fueled the civil rights movement and the passes of laws like the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Yet, during the 50th and 60th anniversary celebrations of the Brown case, Miller is not even mentioned. His erasure from our collective memory is a real travesty. Lauren Miller lived a well-rounded life. While he focused much of his life on legal battles, he never fully abandoned his love of writing and journalism. By the 1950s, Miller owned his own newspaper, the California Eagle, publishing the news for and about the black residents of Los Angeles. Brad Pye, the sports writer who worked for the California Eagle newspaper, wrote how Cuz, as Miller was affectionately known around the newspaper, enriched his life. Using sports metaphors, Pye wrote, quote, in the civil rights field, to me, he was like Jim Brown of the legal profession, knocking down racial barriers all around him. He dribbled through the court of the land like Elgin Baylor and scored as many points in the legal field as Milt Chamberlain does on the basketball court. As a lawyer, journalist, author, publisher, and scholar, he was an all-around man as Willie Mays is on the diamond. Towards the end of his legal career, in 1964, he became a judge. Although Miller's intelligence admired by everyone whom he met he had a tendency towards razor-sharp outspokenness. His acid wit was quick to burn holes in the toughest skin and eat right through double-talk, hypocrisy, and posturing. I would like to conclude by saying Miller was committed to making democracy work for every American. He said, It goes without saying that I am opposed to any discrimination of any kind, on racial and religious grounds, or on any other grounds. I think that we must do that, not only in simple justice to minority groups of any kind, but out of a realization that the majority has a bigger stake, if not bigger, than the minorities. Either we shall have to make democracy work for every American, or in the last analysis, we shall not be able to preserve it for any American, close quote. 
Laura Miller died in 1967 at the age of 64. His words ring true just as loud today. His impact on all our lives and freedoms is experienced when we can live where we want, study where we want. His legacy laid the foundation for today's ongoing progress for civil rights. In recognition of his many contributions to the field of law, the State Bar of California in 1970 established the Lauren Miller Legal Services Award, a lifetime achievement award given annually to a lawyer who has demonstrated a long-term commitment to providing legal services for the poor. We owe much to this great man, and we should celebrate him as a true American hero. Thank you, and now for your questions. I'm from Los Angeles, and I knew his name in my house that I grew up in, but I didn't know much about him. And uh, only when I really decided to, um, to write on him did I ask my father um, you know, a question about Lauren Miller. And it comes out that when my father was a postal carrier in Los Angeles before he became an engineer, he went into a restaurant in Los Angeles with uh, two other mail carriers. Both of those were white. And they refused to serve my father. And so all three of them left. And, um, and Lauren, through my mother, who knew Miller's wife, because my mother was an educator, um, Lauren Miller handled my father's case. And I don't believe it ever went to court, but the standard um, public accommodation discrimination at that time was $100. And so all three of them got $100 each, even the two white guys. So that's what I learned later. Um, but um, I hadn't quite decided what I was going to do. I had three subjects I was thinking about. And I happened to go to the Huntington Library, which is in, um, next to Pasadena in California. You must go there one day. It's absolutely gorgeous. It has these botanical gardens and everything. Um, and um, I had called before, and they said when I got there, because I said I was interested in Lauren Miller and... Um, they said, let them know when I get there, and I did. And um, the curator came out, and he hadn't, and the family, the Miller family had donated 16 dusty boxes to the, to the library, but even the curator hadn't really seen it yet. And so he said, you want to go down to the basement, you know, with me? Because he had to sign receivership papers. And he let me hang out for about three or four, four hours. And, um, and then as I was looking through all of that and the lawsuit and all that stuff, <laughs> And that's when I decided, because I find him a very fascinating man, because he wasn't just about justice for black people. He was about justice for everyone. And, you know, and his experiences and his, you know, his commitment, you know, uh, shows that. Um, you had a, a question right here, sir, in the green jacket. Uh, well, do you think that, uh, you know, the people who were involved in civil rights, uh, did they the people who were involved in civil rights, the leaders, are quote-unquote black leaders. Don't you think a lot of them are getting rich off this civil rights thing? Well, he certainly didn't get rich because, um, in fact, his becoming a judge was because his, his wife kind of wanted him to make some money in his later years to get a pension as a judge. Um, he did have a house. He had a house that was designed by an African-American um, architect, James Garrett who designed his house and um, James's house and then and Miller's house. And, um, but he didn't die in debt. And he struggled with the newspaper that he owned. That was kind of the biggest financial you know, pull on him. Um, he was paid um, you know, money to come to New York for the NAACP. He didn't get much, you know, because I, I saw, you know, checks and things like that, $300 for this and, pa you know, and passage for his... Uh, uh, train ride and things like that. So he didn't make any mo any money. His family um, didn't go on to make any wealth. However, he had a son who became a lawyer and became a judge. And he now has a granddaughter in California who is also a judge. And they are the, I believe, the first uh, three-generation family to be judges in California. 
you know, and so that's that's quite interesting. In fact, I think now his grandson might be uh, a judge. So he he inspired his um, his family, and um, and and also that I found out this was when I was well into the to the to the book that um, indirectly I have a cousin who's married to. Lauren Miller's grand niece, which I didn't even know. Uh, I went to family reunions and functions, and I knew who she was, but I didn't know she was, you know, her um, her grandfather uh, was Lauren Miller's brother, and I didn't know that too, too much later because I only kind of realized it because when my cousin got married, my father said, "Team." Um, Gigi married into his family. They should have a whole lot of lawyers in that family, you know. But like I said, I didn't even know. I was well into it. And so that's kind of interesting, um, you know, how the, I guess, the six degrees of separation. You have another question? Oh, yes. Yeah, Trace. Uh, what was the greatest challenge you faced in your research? I love research. Um, well, the thing was waiting for the FBI documents. That took quite a while. And, um, and some of the things that I've written, because uh, I do have sort of a journalist background, um, that I know have um, upset some people. Because um, he, Miller never said he was a communist. Um, and his, his FBI file goes back and forth. And so I, but I raised the question whether he, whether he was or not. But he was definitely a Marxist. And even though he became very anti-communist during the 1950s when he bought this newspaper, but like Paul um, Paul Robeson and Du Bois, um, who suffered seriously as communists or very close to it, um, I think I, I forgot what the term is called. But I think he was just being smart by not sort of jumping out there because he continued to defend communists in the courts. And he had, he had worked for most of the communist publications. He, he wrote for the New Masses in 1935. He went to, to uh, New York, and he was one of the editors of the New Masses. And he worked for, you know, mostly most of the popular uh, Red Front organizations at the time. So it was like trying to, you know, put that together. The best part, though, was reading the letters and that's, for a biographer, that's like really important because you can read the newspaper articles and you can read what other people say about them or even what they, the person, the subject themselves says. But to see the letters is when all the gloves are off. And when he was um, in the Soviet Union in 1932, and he wasn't married, but he was, he was engaged, he wrote Juanita um, these letters, and they're just really great. And so the family saved them. And then when he was in, in New York in 1935, at this point he is married. And he had, like I say, he had this acerbic tongue. And he, he was very witty. And he was like a regular guy because he would have card parties and they would drink, you know. And I mean, what killed him was those lucky strikes, you know. <laughs> but, um, and just interestingly, you know, he died within about six weeks of Langston Hughes' death. Yeah, that was it. I mean, they had been friends before um, the going to the Soviet Union, but didn't really meet to face to face until he actually brought him out to California in 1932. So, another question? Anybody else have something? Is that it? Oh, here. Yes, sir. Oh, you want to take the microphone? Yes, sir. Hello. Yeah. What? Uh, was there anything that really surprised you in your research? Um, I don't know if I was surprised. I can't say I was surprised. I know I was thrilled. <laughs> you know, there were moments of uh, just elation just to read, especially the letters. Uh, that um, I was kind of surprised after I wrote the book. I didn't realize that. He was so unknown because he had run for Congress unsuccessfully in California. He owned a newspaper, um, but it was his left, and he became a judge. But that was after several other less experienced lawyers, black lawyers, were appointed to the bench in the 60s. Even my aunt, my aunt, um, Vainal Hassan Spencer, she's the first black woman judge 
in California. And she didn't have the experience that he had. And she was appointed before he was, about two years before he was appointed um, to, to the judge. So, but to find out that, and there's a school named after him, the most prestigious um, California bar award is in his name, and he's just not really known. And I could only think is because, um, because he was so close to the communists at that time, and he wasn't a self-promoter. That was the other thing. He was pretty humble. He didn't, his wife was a society, I call her a society maven. She was a delta. She was a link. She had, she belonged into all these societies. And that's what opened doors for him, which would have been open anyway because of his education and in the 1930s would have opened it up for him. But um, she did that. But when they would have parties, he would be up, you know, stairs writing something away from that. So he wasn't so sociable in that kind of way, except that he could hang out. You know. Oh, yes, ma'am. Did you find anything? Did you find anything um, that he wrote reflecting about um, what happened or didn't happen after Brown was passed? After what was passed? After Brown versus Board was passed. Yes. yes, he was very upset. About 10 years later, after Brown, he was quite critical, as his manner was, that, um, so this is 1964, a couple of years before he dies, and he's, you know, and he was upset that because it was such a struggle with the Brown, you know, uh, the Brown case, and he mainly wrote this, what they call, there's a Brown one and there's a Brown two, and the all deliberate speed was the one he worked on more, in effect, and um, it took a long time for the schools to be integrated, there was this big fight, historically, but he was complaining about African Americans um, needing to continue to fight, because um, a lot hadn't happened, because this, you know, these schools weren't being integrated, and he was very, he complained greatly about that. Um, and, and to his credit, he was very strongly um, endorsed the Freedom Now movement. I mean, he he was always, um, you know, he was a thinker. He was really very philosophical about things, and um, and he could see. Um, Rather than some some other you know older black people you know didn't like what the youth was doing and he was there he even you know he wrote about it himself and he wrote about six kind of well known articles in the Nation magazine and one is titled um, Farewell Liberals and in that what he says thank you white people but we can do this ourselves you know thank you for all that you've done but we need to to be in the forefront of this battle and that upset a lot of people. You know, white and black, but um, but he was like into the community. He was into the Latino community in Los Angeles, the Japanese American community, and um, uh, but he just you know, like I said earlier, he's but he didn't promote himself that people would would know. Like I said, I found out even more, you know, afterwards. I've been to to black lawyers, the National Bar Associations you know, conference and stuff like that. And a lot of them didn't even, and never heard of him. But if I say to an attorney, if I say Shelley V. Kramer, most of them know what I'm talking about because that is what they do learn in law school because they have to understand that. It's, you know, it's the 14th Amendment case. Any more? Yes? Sure. Hi, my name is Marie. Um, um, being in high school, this is my first time learning about Lauren Miller. Um, I was just wondering what what you would recommend or what steps should young people take to learn more about um, really important figures from the past because we live in a time where we have to do extensive research to learn about important figures that have done such important things throughout history that go unnoticed well, you're in the library, so you already took a step. <laughs> um, I loved libraries. I was a kid. I would take the, the bus to the main library in Los Angeles every Saturday. Um, it depends on what state you are, and I don't know what the textbooks are in Maryland. 
Um, I know in California they're certainly better than most places because there was a big fight about what to be included. Because um, um, when I was coming up, you just learned about the Indians in California, and you didn't—they didn't teach you that that um, there were 40 families that settled Los Angeles, and half of them were African Mexicans, and you know, and that's just coming out to the general audience. So you have to sort of be more investigative um, when you read a newspaper article and you notice somebody's name, you look them up, find out a little bit more. That kind of thing. But, um, but you're here. I mean, there's so many books on African Americans. Sadly, there aren't as many about the West. And, and that's one of the, I think, one of the problems. You hear about the North and the South, and sometimes about the Midwest, but you don't hear as much. And more and more books are coming out about the contributions of black people in the West, in Washington State, and in Oregon, and in California. You know? so, um, but yeah, just read and ask your teacher for suggestions. You know, and I don't know what kinds of publications it gives you. Do you read Scholastic News or anything? It's just for elementary school. <laughs> you know, look in the back of books. When you read a book, look in the back, in the bibliography, see if a book catches your eye. Um, but like I say, you're here utilizing the library. This is the best place to learn anything, and it's for free. <laughs> you were going to ask something. I'm sorry, I didn't hear. I didn't. Oh yeah, there's, yeah, there there are attorneys all over the place who, I mean, Kimberly Crenshaw, um, who teaches at um, UCLA and Columbia, she has an institute dealing with, um, you know, injustice. Um, she's a really important African American attorney. Um, and then there's, I think it's Michelle Alexander, I think the one who wrote The New Jim Crow. There are a lot of, you know, people are writing and they're involved. I mean, the head of the NAAC Legal Defense Fund. I mean, those organizations are continuing. You just don't hear about them all the time and their victories. But they just sort of do, you know, the, the long, hard kind of work that open up things. When you see like a new law has happened, it didn't just happen overnight. People have been working at it for 10 and 20 years, um, at least, for something uh, you know, to open up. So people are, you know, are, are um, I think, inspired, and I believe Black Lives Matter, it, you know, definitely you know, inspires younger people to, to make a change. Because um, when I was younger, I didn't really believe that systemic change would come from within. But as I've gotten older, you know, it will come from more from within. You can, you can yell out there in the streets all you want, but if you don't get on the committees, or if you aren't on the school board, if you aren't on your local community college board, if you aren't on the PTA meeting, you know, if you aren't, this is how um, one builds, you know, a you know, an organization and people get together and can make change when they're there. You know, you can be in a meeting sometimes and say something, and you can shift the whole meeting. You know, just in small steps, people can do things. And so, but for, but for, for youth, um, you know, find something that you really like, because that's the thing that will sustain you. And no matter what, in terms of education, you can't ever that can't ever be taken away from you. Because I started school. Um, when I started college, I had two kids, and um, it took me about eight years to get through University of California, Berkeley, and, um, and I have five grown children, and so I had, when I was at Berkeley, I had, had one one year, and I had one the next year, and I was still going to school, you know, and so um, I'm not a super person, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but it's about being organized, and I always tell people about getting through college. You don't have to be just. You don't have to be that. It's not smart people. It's organized people or people who have wealth who can get through. But that doesn't mean they learned anything. But you know, it's being organized. And the, how I could do it. I mean, I can never. I failed Arabic. You know, I mean, it just wasn't going to happen. It was too much because that was a day-to-day -day thing. I had to go to class every day and study. I have five kids. Come on. So, but I could write papers. 
because they give you like four week deadline, right? Well, I could do that, and I'm a person who doesn't sleep a lot. I stay up late, get up early, and that kind of thing. So, but it's like you know, just being organized. And I can say because you don't, you know, when people think, oh, you got degrees. Look, it's it's no big thing. It really isn't. You just have to like what you're doing. That's all. Oh, yes. Yeah, I'm work. I'm haven't really started it. Um, I want to do, and I'm not absolute because I played around a couple ideas. I'm not absolute because I'm not sure if they have national impact. The importance of Lauren Miller. He wasn't just important to California and Southern California. He was important nationally. The things he bought. But I'm interested in three Republicans. <laughs> um, Golden State Mutual Life Insurance Company was started in California, in Los Angeles, in 1925, because black people couldn't get insurance. White companies would neither sell to them, or if they did, it would, they would sell them at exorbitant fees. Um, Golden State became the second largest black business in the United States, and the largest in the west, you know, west of the Mississippi River. Um, and so I'm look, looking to look into that. But also what happened, there, there's one portion of what they did. They had the, the finest and the most, um, the best art collection of African-American art. And was sold in 2007. It had 293 pieces and 88 um, pieces were sold by Swan Galleries in New York for one point something million. And they've sold 65 more since in 2013. And actually, this week, they're selling more. <laughs> and so I'm going to look into that because that's part of, um, you know, the importance of these three black men who started this, this company. And so for me, you know, I'm going to have to learn about business and, um, and what they did. And I have to find out what else they Because there, there were pillars of society in Southern California very much involved in everything. And so I could say I don't know what their national significance might be at this point. But I think it might be something of significance more than be interested. Because, you know, why would anybody be interested in a, a black policeman, you know, who was the first policeman maybe, let's say, in... New Jersey or something like that, unless you come from there. You know, things have to be um, not just so personal for a person. So like I said, that's, that's what I'm thinking seriously about, and, um, and I'll be going to California pretty soon to see if I can, you know, interview some family members. And, and, and some of the, they're, you know, they've done oral histories as family, so they're in libraries and things like that. So I think that's what I'm going to do, you know. As you did your research, uh, there's something challenging about when you see people that just keep going against the odds. Is there, was there anything that you saw that made him have this kind of spark to champion on against all the adversities that were there? Was there anything that you found maybe was in his personal? He had, he had a tremendous heritage. He had three of his, um, on his father's side, he had three grand uncles who were, went to the Civil War. One died in the Civil War, um, and the others returned. One in particular, Bird G, in uh, I think it was 1876, he went into a hotel and sat down in the dining hall to be served, and they refused him. And he hightailed it to the states, the Kansas. Um, you know, state's attorney, and he filed a case, and that case made it to the Supreme Court in nineteen in eighteen eighty three. Bundled with I think four other cases, public accommodation cases, and um, the Supreme Court said the United States Congress had no right to pass the Civil Rights Act of eighteen seventy five, which was a public accommodation case. Um, the same uncle. Um, when he was disgusted, and I hope this isn't offensive, but he, you know, he said, well, he was fed up when he lost the case, and he went to Oklahoma. He said, I'm going to, I'm going to go live among the heathens. And he went at the time with the big rush in Oklahoma in, eight, in um, 
1889. And, um, and from there, he fought for his Civil War pension because, and I'm not sure if he really was, it was legal because he wasn't in the Civil War that long, so I'm not sure if he, if that, why he was turned down, but, um, but he was, and he hired an attorney, he took depositions, and the interesting thing for people, um, anyone, but particularly African Americans who you think if you have a relative who's in the Civil War, they might have been entitled to their pension, and there'll be documents, you know, that you can, you can look up. So he had this uncle who just wouldn't give up, and so, um, and his, and his, um, his grandfather, um, you know, they ran away from slavery to Missouri, and one, and his, um, his grandfather's, I guess his sister-in-law, um, she left with seven of her children, and, um, and this particular grandfather has went back and brought that child out of slavery, you know, to, to bring back with, to, his, to her, his mother. And so, and so, so he had this, this struggle, this they don't give up. You know, there's just a strong will. And so, um, and he knew about this granduncle, and he wrote about it. He does have a book, his most definitive um, history. Um, it's called The Petitioners, Negroes, and the U.S. Supreme Court. And that's very interesting, because he doesn't even mention in it the cases that he won. But, um, so yeah, so he had, and, and that's in the book about this, this granduncle and his family, and I tried to track you know, his family back to Africa and all of that. But yeah, so he comes from his family who, who believed in their rights and would stand up for them, you know, no matter the consequences. So. Is that it? Okay. Thanks a lot. I really, really appreciate being asked here. Thank you. podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Maryland State Library Resource Center. For more information and to access more library resources, please visit prattlibrary.org.